Hello and welcome to another edition of Talking Wild Madness. This is Adam. Uh, we're recording this this one about, I don't know, we must be maybe 30 metres from the King River in Albany. Uh, I was going to drive down all the way and actually record it on the banks of the King River, but we've had a lot of rain and uh, I, can't, I can't quite get in there. And the last time I drove the car close to it, I ended up getting uh, I ended up getting bogged. And my good friend John, who was down for a music trip to Kalgoorlie, saved the day and ended up putting branches and twigs behind the tires, and we had to push it out. And it uh, just was a just was no good. So in the interest of not getting bogged, and because John's not here. And I don't feel like putting twigs behind the tires. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna be thirty meters away instead of right on the bank. Uh, but what 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 is the plan? Soon is uh, we're gonna do a, a podcast. We're gonna do a podcast recording in the actual river itself. I just have to roll up these windows. Because there are flies everywhere. Uh, we're going to actually do a podcast in the river. I'm opening the door just to let these flies out. So we're going to do a, a, a podcast submerged in the river, in the King River, and um, and we'll see how that goes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that's going to go. Uh, I'm I'm a bit worried about dropping. About dropping the, uh, dropping the machine in the water, but oh, these flies! Oh, get out, get out! Uh, but we'll see how we go. Wilco is outside on the grass, and he's looking in at me, and it looks like he's saying, uh, "Why on earth are you not out here? What are you doing in there, talking into that little box that you've got in your hand?" Um, and I think I understand exactly what Wilco's thinking. There is one fly. Oh, my Lord. There's one fly that's still in here. And he is... Oh, oh no. Now there's two. Now they've multiplied these flies. Now there's one out. There's one over there. Now there's a policy. There's a, policy, there's a podcast policy uh, that each podcast just gets recorded. And then there's no, there's no editing, and there's no, oh, he snuck back in, there's no, there's no, there's no editing, and there's no uh, redos, so this is going to be, I didn't count on these flies, so this one will, yeah, this is, this is a little bit, this is a little bit of a distraction, and already I'm thinking, okay, Hang on, there's a fly on the inside of the door, and I tried to get him with my R2-D2 beanie that I stole off my son, but I don't think I got him. I used to love all creatures equally. Actually, there was one time where I was working in uh, the prison as a guitar teacher, and I was there, uh, I was almost there every day, and I was almost there every day for five years, and there was an Irish fella called Jim. And Jim was about, he would have been nearly 60 years old. 
But Jim himself, Jim didn't even know how old he was uh, because Jim was an orphan. Uh, he grew up in, in Dublin. And he, uh, he, yeah, he was an orphan, so he never actually knew his real birth date. And, and it was very interesting because he, he was a lovely guy and he used to do, he used to do like a, um, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a psychology course, but he, it, it was, all, it was a halfway between a psychology instruction course, a critical thinking course, a self-awareness course and a self-regulation course. And he and he used to come in and he'd, he'd come in regularly, and at the prison where I worked at that time, uh, it was a remand center. So that would be, that's the that's the prison you go to straight after you're arrested. If you're arrested and charged and you're not getting let back out, that's where they're going to send you. They're going to send you to the remand center. So it, it wasn't a jail that was full of sentenced prisoners, or lifers, or whatever. It was a jail where it was basically limbo. It was basically limbo, which which made it hell, which made it even more hellish, which made it more chaotic because everybody in there was uh, super unsure of what was happening. They were fresh off the, the street, so to speak, so they weren't in there for very long. It was a very, very chaotic, uneasy, unnerved, uh, a place to be and if you, if you can imagine if you can imagine the stress of that you and maybe you maybe you have gone through this but if you can imagine the stress of awaiting a verdict you're awaiting the trial you're awaiting the judgment that's going to come down on you and you have to wait you have to wait for three months or six months and I think the I think the the amount of time, the maximum amount of time was, I think it was two and a half years that you were allowed to keep a prisoner on remand in Western Australia, and if you didn't, uh, if if you didn't sentence that prisoner after two and a half years, uh, then you had to let them go. And when I say you had to let them go, you didn't have to let them go, with a you know compensation for the last couple of years that you'd kept them in prison. You just literally opened the front door of the prison and I think you had to give them a hundred bucks and a bus pass and you gave them a plastic bag with all their with with all their jail belongings and the and the belongings that they came in with. So if you can imagine that tense environment but times nine hundred people, times nine hundred men stuck in this in in a prison situation and no one knows what the future holds no one knows if they're going to be in that situation for another 10 years or five years or whether they'll be let out tomorrow or whether when their court appearance gets called up in six months whether they're going home or whether they are coming back to prison and the majority of the people in prison uh, have issues with self-regulation anyway uh, a, a lot of the people almost half of the people can't um, read or write uh, they they're not used to expressing themselves so 
you've got this heightened sense, like this this saturation of anxiety times 900. And you're adding in all this masculine energy. You're adding in all this sexual frustration. And you're putting them in an ugly environment. And, and that's, that's, um, that's where I met Jim. And he was trying, he, he, he ran a little two hour training program where he was basically trying to change how each prisoner thought about themselves, how, how they thought about their lives. But he was, he was also from Dublin. He was also from Dublin. Now at the time, this this is this is maybe what am I? I'm thirty nine now. This would have been ten years ago. So I would have you know I would have been in, in my late late twenties, and Jim was in his early sixties, and he came from Dublin. I came from Dublin, but he constantly made the 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 mistake or the error of thinking that me and him were from the same part of the universe. And, and, and geographically, somehow a fly got back in, and geographically we were both from Dublin, but our realities were completely different. We, our, we may as well have been from different planets. And, and me and Jim got on very, very well, and we used to have a lot of laughs. Uh, we we got on very well, but every now and then he would, and maybe, maybe it was a testament to the to the level of comfort that we had with each other. Um, every now and then he would slip into this uh, perspective that not only were we from geographically the same part place on Earth, but we were also we'd also shared an identical upbringing and we'd come from the same background and you know we'd even we'd even been in the same orphanage now i i grew up i grew up in a in a suburb outside of dublin called rathfarnham and rathfarnham it's hard it's hard to put it into perspective um because well just by the nature just by the nature of of the podcast uh, there's there's so many different. J- just to give you an example, and I, and I will get back to Rathfarnham very quickly. But we, we have listeners from, even if you just take the small island of Tasmania, we have listeners from Hobart, uh, Dinarin, Dinaran, Din, Din, Dinirin. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Uh, Launceston. We have listeners from South Australia from towns called Elizabeth and Windvale. We have listeners from Auburn in New South Wales. We have listeners from Gravesend in Kent in England. Uh, We have listeners from Manitoba in Canada and British Columbia in Canada. Um, So it's very hard to, it's very hard to describe exactly what Rathfarnham is in relation to Dublin City, because uh, I don't know any of the outer suburbs of 
of Winnipeg or Surrey, BC or Auburn or Gravesend. By the way, if, if you're listening again and you are that those people in Gravesend or Launceston or Windvale in South Australia, um, get in touch, get in touch and, and leave a message. At, um, what's our email? At, uh, it's talkingwildmadness at gmail. Or if you get on the anchor site, you can actually leave a voice message. Actually, that'd be really nice if we had, if we had a voice message, then we could put it into the podcast. That'd be awesome. That'd be that'd be lovely. But anyway, Rathfarnham, it it wasn't the swankiest suburb in town, but it was a good suburb in town. Like if you if you were able to get into Rathfarnham. Now keep in mind, I was eight years old when I left, so. I'm I'm not a uh, I'm not a, a property tycoon or a or a, or a real estate marketeer. But if you were from Rathfarnham in Dublin, in in the mid '80s, um, you know you'd done okay. You you had done okay. You, you didn't have the house on the hill, um, but you weren't sharing a three-level uh, uh, semi-detached with with a shared bathroom with a shared outhouse out the back between three families so it 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 wasn't like i said it it wasn't a house on the hill but it wasn't angel's ashes either well wilco needs to get in because it's raining boy so jim who was as i said he was like 60 and he he had grown up in dublin and I think because we had such a nice rapport together, and Jim really was a gorgeous guy. He was really, really lovely, and he had the best of intentions with the with the um, with the prisoners. You know, as did almost everybody who worked in the, who worked in that space. Yeah, almost everybody did. There was a Scottish Buddhist. Uh, I don't know if it's a monk or a nun. I don't know if there's a distinction, but there was a woman, and she was in her 60s as well, and she used to come in on Wednesday afternoons and and Friday mornings for free. She didn't get paid. Jim was getting paid, and, and I was getting paid, but this the Buddhist monk, the Scottish Buddhist monk lady, and I completely have forgotten her name, but she was a gorgeous soul, and she was basically a, a Buddhist monk um, but she dressed. She didn't. She didn't have like robes on. She just. She just dressed normally. If you if you saw her out and about, she would just look like uh, a short Scottish lady with a ginger flat top, which which she had, and she she rocked very very nicely. But she would have been about yeah in her early sixties, and she'd come in on Wednesday afternoons. And run a meditation class at the at the prison at the jail school, and and um, man, I have to say, you have to give it to, to to these 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 boys that came through the prison uh, because some of them would just they they I don't know if they transform forever, as in I don't know if their transformation within the school lasted when they went back outside, back into their world, back into their family, back into their um, back into their habits or whatever you want to call it. 
but but some of them would come into the to the jail and they didn't have access to booze they didn't have access to drugs and some of them just embraced everything that the jail had to offer and it's important to remember that the jail had nearly fuck all to offer anybody but it did have it did have that school where you could go hang out with a buddhist monk for a couple of hours a week it had the school where you could hang out and play guitar a couple of times a week it had it had a space where you could learn how to cook uh, a couple of times a week it had a space where you could hang out with say jim from dublin and um and 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 approach the idea of of thinking differently than than how you have been thinking his his program was almost what's interesting is called a program his program was almost like let's change your program your programming has led you to make these choices which has led you to end up here the good news is you ultimately get to choose your own program you get to rewrite your your own software um you know so the, the in in fairness to the jail it did offer all, all those kinds of things and we were all in that together we really were all in that together because i remember talking to the scottish monk oh, i wish i remember her name it might have been something horrendously scottish like morag it might have been but i don't think so because i probably would have remembered it i think it was like a soft morag like maybe a, a mava or a mova or a Oh, I can't remember what it was. But I, I was chatting with her, and she was so gracious. She was so gracious. And keep in mind, I, w I was getting paid to be there, and, and she wasn't, and she'd make the trek in twice a week. She would see the mainstream prisoners uh, on, on the Wednesday afternoon, and the mainstream prisoners, I think it was Wednesday, it might have been a Tuesday afternoon, or even a Thursday afternoon, but she would see the mainstream prisoners. So these are your standard armed robbers, murderers, drug dealers, uh, grievous bodily harmers, um, forgers, etc., etc. But then she'd come in on the Friday and she would work with the protection unit and she would run a meditation class for the protection unit. And the protection unit were the pedophiles, the child molesters the tamps, the uh, guys that owed money in prison, the guys that uh, ran up drug tabs that they couldn't pay off. But the outcasts, the, the, the outcasts of the outcasts. And she would come in, she'd come in for both. She'd come in for both groups. And she might get half a dozen guys from the mainstream that would come in, and she might get two, or I actually remember her, having a, a meditation class with the unit six people, but only one person was there. And I, and I remember her running a, a two hour meditation with this one man, this one pedophile, or this one man who had chosen to be a pedophile, or this one man who happened to be a pedophile, or however you want to phrase it. And this small diminutive, five foot three stocky Scottish woman with a ginger flat top who happened to be a Buddhist monk 
sat in a plastic chair in a room built in a 1970s prison 40 years 40 years after it was built and sat for two hours in a room and closed her eyes and talked softly and talked about self-regulation, self-awareness, being in the moment, existing in the space. And I, I haven't been, I haven't been in the prison for very long, well, for five or, five or six years, seven years maybe now. And, and uh, yeah, when I think back on it, I think, oh, I hope, I hope that stuff's still going. I hope they still have guitar teachers and, and, and cooking teachers and, and Buddhist monks coming in and, and men like Jim talking about, uh, talking about self-regulation and, and self-awareness. But myself and Jim, anyway, we had this, we had this lovely, we had this lovely Irish immigrant bond, but his was more intense because he, he, he literally, he had been an orphan and, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> the last thing I am is an orphan. The last thing I am. There's a story about Duke Ellington um, that um, Duke Ellington was born in into a, a family and his mother didn't let his feet touch the ground for seven years. She she carried him everywhere and looked after him and there wasn't, yeah, there was nothing, there was nothing she couldn't do for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm more, I'm more on the Duke Ellington side of things, to be completely honest. And I wish I was more on the gym side of things, but I'm not, I have to be honest. I, I, I've been very well looked after by my, by my family. Um, and, and there's Jim as an orphan. And keep it, I mean, this is, he's an orphan in the 1970s in in uh, in in Dublin in the 1970s and if anyone knows anything about um Ireland 1970s Ireland is like 1670s New York it is a different universe it's a different planet um and Jim Jim was so nuts when Jim would turn up to the prison he he had he had half a pinky finger missing and he never explained he never explained it. People would always ask him, "Jim, Jim, what the hell's going on with your finger, man? How did you end up losing your finger?" And he'd never, uh, he'd never explain. He'd never explain why. But because he was in that role that he was in, and he was, he was, he 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 was basically his version of the catcher in the rye. He was trying to help as many people as he could, and the way he knew how to help people, well, he was trying to make them think better. And he was so obsessed with his little program and I don't mean little in a um is, is pejorative the right word I don't mean it in a pejorative sense but it was a short program it was a two to four hour program where he would get people in a room and he would have his slideshow and he would go through how it is that you can think better and I, so when I say little it was because it was a short program it was like it was half a day to a day a day's work um, for for the guys taking the program, um, and he always used to work on it. He used to work on his program because I'd be chatting with him, and he would say sometimes he'd wake up in the middle of the night, and he would think, "Oh, I need to change slide thirty three. I need to change. I need to. I need at the moment slide thirty three is a black and white almost Escher 
landscape and there are trails cut in the landscape and there's a man on the equivalent of a man-sized hamster wheel running that wheel through the path, through the carved landscape. And he would say, oh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I think I need to make, I need to colorize the wheel. I need to leave everything in black and white, but I think if I if I colorized the hamster wheel that the man was walking on, if I made that if I made that red, that might uh, again is the word ameliorate, edify, improve. We'll have to look that up. If I was going to ameliorate the slide at slide thirty three, I would make that hamster wheel red, and I think that would connect more. With the with the, with the with the boys, he'd always call them the boys. I was about to say the prisoners, but Jim would always refer to the prisoners as the boys. Maybe the boys would, would appreciate that better. And then he would say, like two three days later, he'd wake up and say, "No no no, the, the wheel has to be yellow. The wheel has to be yellow." And he would go on and on like that. So he he'd be he'd be he'd be doing the same program. It reminded me of uh, George Burns, the comedian. Who, I think he lived to be 101, and he he was the American Jewish comedian. And he had he had the horn rim glasses. He was like he was like Woody Allen before Woody Allen, and he smoked that big cigar. And he might have made it fashionable to marry very young women in bikinis. I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm not 100 percent sure. But George Burns had a similar approach to his to his act that Jim had in the prison. Like George Burns apparently had the same act, the same hour for 30 years, 40 years, and he would just travel and 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 perform his act. But it was an act that he kept tweaking. And he would tweak it a word at a time. He was always thinking about it. He was always just thinking about it. Oh, when I make that joke about my ex-wife and the uh, and uh, and the Mercedes, maybe it's funnier if if she's driving a BMW instead of a Mercedes. I'll try that. I'll try that. I'll try that tomorrow night at the at the Alpha Cubana Florida Springs uh, uh, Senior Hotel. And then the next day he'd be like, "No, no, the, the BMW didn't get didn't get as many laughs as as the." Uh, as the Mercedes, I'm, I'm going to go back to the Mercedes, and, and Jim had a very similar, uh, holistic sense towards his training program. He was always thinking about it. But what 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 was really what was interesting, is that we had such a nice time together that he would confuse his reality to my reality, and he would he would say that, well, Adam, you know we're. As you know, Adam, as being a boy from Dublin, it wasn't it wasn't as good as it you know it wasn't as good back then as we have it now. And and uh, I'd have to remind Jim. I'd have to remind Jim. I'd say, hey Jim, I uh, when I, when I lived in Dublin, I, I had a bidet in the bathroom. I had a bidet in the upstairs bathroom. Yeah, Jim didn't. Jim didn't even have a bathroom. Forget a bidet. Jim grew up in an orphanage where you had to go outside and 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 shit in a hole in, in the ground. 
and then depending on on your behavior you or your friends would be out there cleaning that hole in the ground I'm just rolling the windows down again because um, there's nothing like there's nothing like nature but I have to say the flies really are they're pushing it <laughs> they really are pushing it I, I wish I knew this, the the sounds that I was listening to. I wish I knew the the names of the the birds and the trees, so to speak. I was just watching a documentary on uh, on New York, and it it was very very fascinating because one of my favorite documentary filmmakers of all time is Ken Burns. And Ken Burns, uh, uh, he, he's probably most recently famous for doing the Vietnam War and the Civil War documentary. Uh, but I came to know Ken Burns years ago, years ago, maybe 10 years ago, probably while I was arguing with Jim about me having a bidet in, in, the, in the upstairs bathroom. And uh, and him telling me how much LSD he took in in uh, in early seventies Dublin. Can you imagine what the LSD in nineteen seventies Dublin would have been like? My lord. It either would have been absolutely terrific, or it would have been like having a strong cup of tea. For Jim's sake, I hope it was absolutely terrific. But I found out today that Ken Burns, okay, so Ken Burns made that, made that amazing documentary about jazz. It's 15, 20 hours long. It's, it goes from Congo Square to um, right, I, I, right up until the time he made it, which was like 1980 or 1990. Absolutely incredible. If you're interested... If you're in, okay, if you're interested in jazz, if you're interested in music, if you're interested in filmmaking, or if you're just interested in existence, you need to watch Ken Burns Jazz. You need to watch Ken Burns Jazz. Uh, and if you have children or grandchildren, they love it. They love sitting there and watching it. His film, Ken Burns' filmmaking is so good. He also made... Uh, a 15, 20 hour documentary on the history of baseball in America that goes from the first baseball game in Cooperstown, wherever, in Jerkwater, Illinois, right up until the, the present day. And I don't like baseball. I've never actually watched a game of baseball, but this documentary is incredible. And I actually went. I went to. Um, I went to New York a couple of years ago. Uh, the uni sent me to to talk at a race conference uh, because the the stuff I was doing at the uni had a bit to do with uh, race and Indigenous Australian, non-Indigenous Australian relations. So there was a race conference in New Jersey that uh, that I ended up going to. 
And one of the speakers was Ken Burns. But he, he spoke the day before that I got into the, into the country, so I missed him. I missed him speaking. But, but Ken Burns is, is, is he's like, he, he's in the pantheon of filmmakers. He's, he's a Francis Ford Coppola level of filmmaker. He's uh, he's a Roman Polanski level filmmaker without the without the without the you know what without the pedophilia. Well, now I can't actually speak for Ken Burns. I don't know, but hopefully, it doesn't seem like it. But then again, when does it ever seem like it? We're going to give Ken Burns the benefit of the doubt. So I found out, I found out this morning that. Um, Ken Burns has a brother called Rick Burns and Rick as well as being Ken's brother is also an incredible documentary historical filmmaker in his own right and he's made a 15 to 20 hour documentary on the history of New York And I was, I was, I was, I found this out this morning and it was early this morning. It was like 5.30 this morning and I was drinking, uh, I was drinking some coffee and I'm a simple man. I am a simple, simple man. And I buy, I buy a packet of coffee probably once a week. The, um, in the, in those packs that are vacuum sealed and they look like, uh, small bricks and they've got the, the coffee powder in there and I just put it in a plunger and it costs three dollars to buy the um, to buy the coffee, the vacuum, the vacuum sealed coffee packs. So I'm 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 standing in my kitchen, and it is five thirty in the morning, and I've let my three dollar coffee brew in the in the uh, in the plunger. I've put the plunger down. I've poured a coffee, and then I find out that Ken Burns, master documentary maker has a brother who also happens to be a master documentary maker. And it was one of those moments where you just thought, this is, this is, this is good. The world, the world, the world is good. Every now and then the world gifts, gifts you certain things. And it was almost like it wouldn't even be true. It wouldn't even be true that, uh, that Ken Burns had a brother called Rick Burns who also makes amazing American documentary films. That's insane. That's like finding out that Martin Scorsese has a brother called Ricky Scorsese who also makes incredible Italian-American gangster movies. Like, it's... It's, 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 it's absurd. It's absolutely preposterous. But one of the amazing things, well, it's not preposterous. It, 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 it happens to be true. Ken Burns and Rick Burns are brothers, and they, and they do these things. Can you imagine the Christmas dinners? Can you imagine the sibling rivalry? My Lord. Or can you imagine the Thanksgiving dinners with all the cultural weight and baggage that goes on there? They were talking about um, the different things that happened in New York, 
and the this the, the documentary is so comprehensive and I've only watched one episode but the documentary is so comprehensive that it starts it starts in 1620 uh, like this this is it goes back to when to when Manhattan looked like the Isle of Sky or the Isle of White or the Isle of Man a hundred years ago like it, it goes back to where there is nothing and they had these incredible they had these incredible stories that there was a farmer who owned a plantation along the East River and he was a Dutch man called Joseph uh, Bronk and where his plantation used to be back in the day back in 1615 or whatever it was is now the Bronx in in America and that the Dutch East India Company found an Indian trail that went through lower to upper Manhattan and they widened that Indian trail and obviously the Indians the Indians who who had forged the trail were using it to walk on or who who uh, were using it as a as a passageway uh, but as a pedestrian passageway and the Indians who were there had been there for had been there since the ice age had been there since the ice age and they had these 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 walking trails and the Dutch East India Company uh, widened this walking trail so they could they could they could fit their horses and they could fit their carriages and and so it could be so it couldn't be a walking trail so it could be a a, a, a commerce trail and they called it bridway and today that's called broadway in insanity like insanity and then they cover they, they 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 talked about the fact that the the, the 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 Dutch, the glorious Dutch, all oh, those wonderful, those wonderful race of people. And I have to say, when when I'm checking, when I'm checking, and I'm getting messages from people who have listened to the podcast, um, we we are yet to hear anybody come in from Holland. We're we're yet to hear any uh, anyone from Amsterdam. But but these these Dutch these Dutchmen these Dutch. Is it just Dutch men or Dutch men and women? I think it might be just Dutchmen at this stage. They they called a meeting of all the native tribes on the island of Manhattan. And that's when they brokered the deal. That's when they brokered the the, the initial, the first and most insane real estate deal to ever go down uh, in, in American history. And they, they brokered for the sale of Manhattan Island. Now, when I first heard this story, I heard that they, they that, that the native Indians sold Manhattan to the Dutch for, uh, it was like $7 or $12 and a necklace full of beads and shells. And, you know, you hear that and you think, oh, come on now. What's come on now? That's outrageous. Uh, but apparently, the 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 figure 
the figure was um, the equivalent to six hundred dollars. So it was more than seven or twelve dollars, and and a and a necklace and a pair of beads. It was, it was six hundred dollars. Now, if you're if you're growing up, if you're growing up as a as a as a white man, with a bidet in the second story bathroom, and you're told that story, as a child, as a young man, as a boy, if you're told that story. The reaction is, oh, really? How could they? Oh, how silly. What do you mean they sold the entire island of Manhattan for seven dollars and and, a, and some shells on a on a on a string? Well, that's just ridiculous. Now, even with the increase in money, to buy the fourteen thousand acres of Manhattan real estate for six hundred dollars even back in 1620 is still is still a remarkable deal but you have to you have to remember you have to take into consideration that that deal the deal for the deal for the the Dutch East India Company was was a windfall but the deal for the for the native indians the american indians it wasn't even a tragedy because it was so absurd the idea the notion that a man could buy land from another man would have just been absurd it would have been it would have been completely and utterly ridiculous. It, it, I, I think it would be the, no, I don't think, I know it would be the equivalent of me saying to you, I, I, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to buy the color blue off you, or I'd like to buy the color green from you. How much do you want for the color green? Well, I'll take, uh, I'll take 60 guilders, a necklace, and... Uh, and the horse that's behind you and uh, throw in throw in the uh, throw in the axe as well and then I can have the color green yeah sure yeah of course you can you can have the color green and I'll throw in uh, I'll throw in brown and uh, maybe we can do it maybe we can do a timeshare on the color purple and uh, and, uh, and we'll talk about turquoise next year depending on how this how this all plays out The, the idea of a human selling land to another human. And even, even in, in this day and age, and I want, to be, I want to be very clear, even though I'm, I'm, I'm saying I had a bidet in the, in, the, in, the top sto in the second story of my bathroom when I was a child, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not of the Vander, Vanderbilt class. I'm not of the uh, the Stuyvesant class. I don't have uh, uh, I don't have uh, wealth and grounds and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but about ten years ago, I bought a block of land to build a house on, and it's the house I'm living in now. It's the house that's 
that's that's um, 50, 100 metres from the river. And I'm halfway to the river, if not for the big puddle in the way. Um, but even as, as recently as, say, 10 years ago for myself, the idea that, okay, I wanted to build a, ha- a home, I wanted to build a house, and I wanted to build a house on a, on a, um, in a rural setting. The feeling that I got when I was purchasing the land, because I bought the land, actually, I think I bought the land in about 2006, and it's now 2019, and the house, the house has been on it for about six years. So I think I bought this patch of earth 10 years before I got around to putting a house on it or eight years or whatever that I mean that time doesn't that that doesn't really matter but the feeling that I had instinctively of I'm buying this land who am I buying this land from it was it was a very very strange feeling it was a very very weird feeling who am I who who is selling me this land who is selling me this land I, I had to go and, and borrow money from the bank to pay. I, I mean, to this day, I don't even know who that person was that I bought the land of. But how did that person come to own that land? And did that, did that person buy that land from someone else? And if so, who did that person? How did that person come to own that land? And maybe they bought it from someone else. And then that, the question just shuffles back. Well, who owns this land? Who has the right to sell this land? It's very, very peculiar. It's, it's, it's very, very peculiar. But you still buy it. You still buy the land. You still build the house. And then, and then you take a sense of ownership over that, over that property. You take a sense of ownership over it. And what do you enjoy most about it? You enjoy, you enjoy the sense of openness and freedom and wildlife. You don't enjoy that it's, that it's yours, that it's all mine, like Daffy Duck in, 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 uh, in Aladdin's cave in one of those cartoons. You know, you don't, that's not what you enjoy. You almost enjoy, you enjoy the, the landscape and the wildness because it's outside of the worst parts of our, of our human mercantile existence. And yet we've incorporated it profoundly into our existence. Money, land, man. It's interesting. It's interesting to see the amount of the amount of wildlife, the amount of animals, even even the farm life incorporated into the wildlife that, that, that that's here.
to to my left right now there are about 300 sheep in 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 in, a, in an enormous paddock and for some reason they're all sitting down today they're just sitting down now if i was to beat my horn it would probably startle them and they'd all run around but you know we're, we're definitely not going to do that for for all manner for all manner of reasons over the river to the other side there are maybe probably 150 cattle and over the river the hill just crests up and and the cattle are they're just there now they're all standing up and to my right there's a scattering of sheep not as many as there is on the left and there's a few kangaroos dotted in between the, the sheep on the right and they are lying down with their with their heads up mostly a few of them have their heads down and then to the south over the hill i can't see it because it's over the hill but there's a um a horse farm i don't know if a horse farm is the right phrase but there's a big open farm um full of horses and then if i look down to the floor of the car there's wilco asleep absolutely blissed out <laughs>